for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. On today, May the 4th be with you, Star Wars Day, we look at how a real star could devour a planet in one bite. Astrophysicists have found evidence of it happening in our galaxy, a huge planet the size of Jupiter, gone in a flash of light, swallowed by the star it was orbiting. And fast forward billions of years, it's a fate that may await the Earth as well. We find out why. There are lots of questions swirling around tonight about why the federal conservative MP Michael Chong was not warned back in 2021 that his family in Hong Kong may be targeted for intimidation by Beijing over Chong's political activities here at home. Those allegations were contained in a July 2021 report by CSIS, but Chong wasn't told until this week once it became public knowledge. So what happened to that report? We asked Federal Public Safety Minister Marco Mendicino. As final preparations continue for the coronation of King Charles III on Saturday, a new Ipsos poll shows that 60% of Canadians would like the Prime Minister to call a referendum about the future of the monarchy in this country. But we find out why cutting ties with the new king or any of his successors, for that matter, would actually be a whole lot tougher than just a simple vote. But first, we head to London to get the latest on coronation preparations and find out more about what Canada's role will be on the big day. History will unfold on the streets of London in a little less, well, a little more than 48 hours right now. Lots of global news coverage to look forward to of that. Uh, King Charles III will become the 40th sovereign to be crowned at Westminster Abbey on Saturday morning with the Queen Consort crowned beside him. Saturday morning, our time at least. Early morning. Uh, the Abbey has been the setting for every coronation since 1066. Can you imagine? Since 1066 with William the Conqueror being the first monarch to be crowned there. And we learned more about Canada's role in these events on Saturday, the first coronation in 70 years. You'll remember what a big deal Elizabeth's coronation was back in 1953, really the first major television event. This one, well, we know how this all works. The TV cameras will be there. It's, uh, I guess it's all a bit um, more routine now, but I still think it'll be something worth seeing. It is history unfolding. The Canadian Armed Forces will have a prominent place, as will the RCMP. As always, 45 members of the Armed Forces will take part in a military parade following the King's Coronation Service at the Abbey. Um, You'll see the Governor General, Mary Simon, Prime Minister Trudeau, and Jeremy Hansen, our astronaut who's heading to the moon, to orbit the moon, uh, hopefully next year in 2024. He'll be our flag bearer. So the flag of each realm, including Canada, there are 14 of them, will be carried by a national representative, in our case, Jeremy Hansen, alongside the Governor General and the Prime Minister. And Indigenous leaders will also be on hand for the entire event. They met with the King today. Three of them, actually, they were the only contingent of Canadians to meet with the King. Uh, They met him at Buckingham Palace. The heads of the National First Nations, Inuit and Métis groups had what they described as a positive audience with King Charles III. Cassidy Caron says the meeting, uh, she's with the Métis group, said the meeting was more than a symbolic gesture. To take the time out of his extremely busy schedule before a historic event that has not happened for over 70 years and to be the only meeting with Canadian representatives prior to that signals that there will be a future where we can be working together in a good way. Now, we're going to talk in the next half hour about uh, why it is that Canadians seem quite ambivalent about the coronation 
and King Charles III and what that means, what kind of conversation we should be having in this country about the future of the monarchy. But before we do that, let's set the scene again. Let's set the table, find out what's going on in London, find out more about what Canada's role is going to be. Joining me now from London, someone who drops in often here to talk about things royal, is royal commentator, one who has been such for more than two decades, Patricia Treble. Uh, you can find her work on Substack at Right Royalty. And uh, yeah, she joins us tonight from London. Patricia, thank you so much for your time. Oh, my pleasure, Ben. You know, it's it's one of the, there's so much consternation leading up to these things, but the event itself, and, and let's be honest, this is history, right? Regardless of what you think of the monarchy, this will be interesting to watch. You must be, what's the mood like there right now? It is amazing because if you, you came from Canada where there's like very little coronation, you come in here and it's basically coronation 24-7. You go into the local Tesco grocery store, like the little mini market, yep. and there are coronation banners welcoming you in. And then there here's the coronation shelf of all the, all the food and the booze, and it's fun. You really see the preparation. So there are crowd control barriers everywhere, most of them up and then a few of them just so people can still go across the streets, but they're getting ready to just clamp down. And it's and the security we're seeing, there were probably we saw just out and about today three or four motorcades and some short, some quite long. And they're doing all the rehearsals. Apparently at the big dress rehearsal at Westminster Abbey. And you can see it. I mean, just going by Westminster Abbey, may I say, do it on the number 26 bus. Yes. You're you very can, if you get upstairs, if you get upstairs, you can have a nice view. No, yes. I was even on, the, I was even downstairs. You're oh, well. very comfortable and everyone is standing out and about, but literally there's probably a dozen police out in front of the abbey. I mean, oh, it, the security, the security captain is going to be it amazing. Is. Yeah, and it's it's yeah. their ability also to shut it down, to sort of shut everything down, then open everything up. It's quite a, they. I mean, they they've done a lot of these uh, clearly over the over the years. They have it down pat. Uh, we found out a bit more about. I mean, speaking of Canada, we found out a bit more about what what Canada will be doing on Saturday, and uh, will there will be a presence there? It's going to be an interesting one. We're, we'll see ourselves reflected in this ceremony. Yes, it's very much of a, of a British coronation, but it is also he is he is the king of fifteen realms. Canada being one, you know, Britain being one, Australia, you know, New Zealand. You keep going down the list, and what we're going to see is we're going to see the two processions in and out. So what we're going to see is we're going to have the Governor General Mary Simon and the Prime Minister Pierre Tr- um, Justin. Justin, Trudeau. Justin, oh yes, that's all right. You know, now and again, Pierre never and, got to go to a coronation, and, and the flag. <laughs> is yep. going to be, and I've, I've completely blanked on his name, but he's the astronaut who's going to the moon. Yes, Jeremy Hansen. Yeah. Yes, of course. Exactly. He was on the, we had him exactly. on the show a while back. I'm sure that's a big on. And and, and so, some other, like they, they tried to really paint a portrait of Canada as sort of, of, of Canada of the 21st exactly. century. So lots of representation, so, science, uh, indig- yep. First Nations and so on. Yeah. And the, and the Indigenous presence was always expected because the Australian Prime Minister had had referenced it because apparently the palace said, we want to make sure you have a strong Indigenous representation in your delegation. And so we always knew in the Canadian delegation, I mean, this is what happened with the Queen's funeral and stuff like that, mm-hmm. that we're going to have the most senior leaders of the Indigenous communities in Canada are going to be there. And I mean, let's face it, some of them have been very critical of the monarchy, but that doesn't matter. They want them there because there's a very strong relationship between them. And the other thing is we're going to have, we're going to have Margaret McMillan. Yes, the historian uh, is there the historian. For taking, taking so, part in history. Yeah. So she has a dual purpose because not only is it the Order of Canada, 
Uh, but she is also a member of the Order of Merit. Now, the Order of Merit is this amazing order that is at the sovereign's personal pleasure. Only 24 people. So it's people like Stephen Hawking, you know. Right. And we're also going to be seeing one of the person who's been awarded Cross of Valor. Yeah, and this is I was a Coast reading Guard that. member. Right. Leslie yeah. Arthur Palmer, I believe, is the Cross of Valor yes, recipient. Exactly. And as always, there is always a role for the RCMP and the Canadian Armed Forces yes. in these events. We saw it at the funeral, of course, with the RCMP leading the funeral procession out of Westminster Abbey. And they'll be there again on Saturday. Yes. So we're going to have we're going to have musical ride officers and they're going to be riding mounts that have been given to the sovereign, whether Elizabeth II or Charles III now by the RCMP. Now, here's the thing is that the RCMP talked about only four mounts that Elizabeth there, but the the Buckingham Palace says, nope, there's going to be five. So whether Elizabeth, the horse is there or not, I don't know. Do not, but all the others are going to be there. And we've got the military are going to be there. There's going to be 45 members of the Canadian forces. And so they've been doing rehearsals. If you've been up at midnight, I have not, you can actually see some of the rehearsals. And what we've seen also, the Gold State coach. Now, got to see the Gold State coach. They're going to be coming back from Westminster Abbey. The reason they don't go there is simply it is so old. It is from uh, 1762. It is simply slung onto uh, leather. And that's how they hold it up. There's no shock absorber. So it sways to the point that Late Queen used to talk about basically it made her nauseous, seasick. I've seen it. Yes, I've um, seen it. It's 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 spectacular, it, but it does not look comfortable. It, it they're going in comfort in a brand new state coach that was uh, that was actually built in Australia, air conditioning the whole everything, you know. Right. But they're going to come back in the Gold State coach, and that sucker, they specially breed the horses at Windsor because they have to pull this thing because it is like five tons, and you need eight of them. <laughs> And yeah, they can only it, move. Yeah, it can it, only move at a walking pace. It is <laughs> fabulous. Patricia Treble is a royal commentator. Her work is at uh, on Substack at Right Royalty, and she often drops by to talk about things royal with us. She's in London tonight. Uh, Patricia, we've been we've been dropped from the uh, from the coronation oath. Tell me tell me a bit about that. So coronation oath is he's making a vow for life, right? And yes, it's going to be United Kingdom and other realms and territories. But let's face it, there's a lot of realms now. So back then it was like, I think, six. And now it's like 15, right? So are you going to name them all or are you going to drop them all? Drop them all. You've written about what's going on here. I mean, there are some things going on, but I, you know, the excitement level yeah. here is is pretty low. And yeah. uh, the public events planned are pretty basic stuff. Yeah, I mean, basically, I mean, there's an event in Ottawa. There's a stamp. Apparently, we're getting like new emblems. I mean, there's talk that they're simply going to do redo the coat of arms. But the lieutenant governors for most of the provinces are having things. You don't want to take part. There are going to be, you know, there's parties and parks. There's, you know, if you want to get up incredibly early and go to a government house that is apparently available, I think, in two of the maritime provinces, Ontario is actually doing quite a lot. A lot of the uh, the provincial museums and everything are opening up free, but very, very low key. It shows you this, this is a government-led thing. So if the government isn't interested, there is nothing happening. Yeah, I think they've, they're also acutely aware of, even in England right now, or in Britain right now, because of, or in England specifically, because of what a difficult winter it was with cost of living yeah. increases and so on. Yeah. Everyone's very, very mindful of just how much of a splash yeah. you should be putting on right now. There's a lot of tourists in town for the coronation, I will say. But yeah, you're seeing it, and you're also seeing it in the fact that the king has made it very clear he's reusing a lot of the 
stuff from his grandparents. So he's wearing his grandfather's robes to and from Westminster Abbey. He's going to be wearing um, some of some of the, the really formal. The, there's there's gold tunics and robes and things like that, and those are from his grandfather. And people like think, oh, it's all everything is new for this sort of thing. There's a huge expense. But a lot of it is, to be honest, is very carefully preserved for generation. No moths. Don't get the moths in. And they just bring it out. They update it. Here's the question, though. He's like 5'10". William, the next king, he's like 6'3". Yeah, I'm not sure what's happening. I know, there. I, I've met Charles, and he's taller than yeah. you think. Like he yeah. seems bigger than that to me, but we'll see. Yeah, I've met Charles yeah. and Camilla on a, on on an occasion. So I guess the future ah. future king, future king and queen yeah. uh, always like. And, and what is and what has been? I mean, have you seen? Are there a lot of people already camped out and all that? Are there are people sort of getting ready? There are this a core contingent so, of sort of super fans, but yeah. um, do you see, do you, yeah. do you sense the excitement in the air? It's, I have to say, having yeah. been there for these things, it's a bit strange because the city is so massive that life just rolls yeah. on. No one's paying much attention at all. But within that sort of, you know, two square kilometer radius around the palace, it's a big oh, deal. Yeah. Oh, it's a big deal. So, I mean, look, I was staying outside of Windsor for a while, which, and Windsor is probably about like half an hour away by train. And I was in a, an off license and the guys were debating what they were going to do on the coronation. The, oh, the guy who's buying his beard, they were talking to everything. And they're like, do we go to Windsor? Well, there's going to be something here. Do we go here? Do we look at the screens here? There's so many options, but they are unbelievably organized for this. And they know it's going to be a big deal. And the, they asked like two, two weeks before, are you going to be watching? And everyone's like, no. And then the morning of, everyone gets up and watches it. <laughs> I mean, yeah, well, I mean, and it's the same way in Canada. I mean, you know, haven't had one in seventy years, so we you're kind of curious we, as to know what the heck is going on. I mean, to think that that you know the the coronation of Queen Elizabeth was sort of the big first big TV event, and here we are, the next one, and you can I watch know. it watch it in your the palm so, of your hand. <laughs> I mean, it's we've come a long way. We've come a long way. And, and it shows it show it well. And, and one of the ways it shows is the fact that they're only having to close the Westminster Abbey for two weeks to get ready. Now, they have to build a whole theater and they have to put in extra seating and stuff like that. They're making it. It's going to be about 2,500. When the Queen Room was, they closed it for six months and they put in stadium seating for 8,000. But here's the thing. To Westminster Abbey, a lot of the cameras are already there. Yeah, they, they so have it all. Simply... Yeah, they just roll it in. They have the whole system. It, they just kind of yeah. unfold it like, yeah. like a big tent and take it back out. And, and they're going to be adding more, obviously, but they just did it six months ago for the Queen's funeral. They know exactly what they're doing. But the only thing we're going to have is the weather. Because, of course, for the Queen in June, it was cold and rainy. And what are they forecasting for Saturday here? Light rain. For the Queen's funeral, rather, everyone was, it stayed quite nice. Um, and, and it really helps. But I think intermittent rain isn't too bad in London. It kind of means it'll clear over, it'll rain a bit, it'll be sunny. Mm. You, know, you get that thing where you get all four seasons in one day. Um, <laughs> have you figured out where the prime minister is staying yet? Do we know where he's staying? Have you tracked him down? I have not tracked him down. I'm going to be honest. I've, I've had my hands full. I've been, I've been trying to kind of cram in as many kind of coronation themed events at once. So, so like I was at the Canada House because um, yes. they've got the Library and Archives Canada has Square, a, an exhibit yep. on, which is a lot of photographs and stuff like that, but some very cool items. They have the encrypted telegram that the King George VI sent to his Canadian Prime Minister, Louis Saint Laurent, yep. three days after Charles was born, thanking him on his, you know, sending a note about birth of the new grandson. And, here and he that is. was amazing. And, and here he is all these years later, and he's going to be crowned. 
I highly recommend if you just hang out in front of Canada House, you'll see a lot of people. Patricia, as always, uh, enjoy this moment in history. Thank you so much. Oh, my pleasure, Beth. You know, I'm in Victoria, which is known to be kind of a little piece of England right here in Canada. And even here, I saw something. I saw a little coronation stuff at one of the local coffee shops recently. But other than that, there hasn't been much excitement about uh, about the coronation of King Charles III on Saturday, or much excitement about King Charles, period, really. And some new polling by Ipsos for Global reflects that. Um, only about 28% of Canadians say they'll be watching the coronation on Saturday. 45% say they won't pay any attention at all. As for the king himself, 37% have a favorable view of Charles III, while 44% don't. The rest don't really have an opinion. And 61% of people asked say the monarchy is too linked to the history of colonialism and slavery to have a place in modern Canadian society. Here's Sean Simpson of Ipsos. Negative sentiment towards the the monarchy has uh, increased over the last six months or so since the Queen's uh, death, for example. Fewer people now, uh, only 41%, believe that King Charles III and Queen Camilla will help keep the monarchy relevant to Canadians. Sean Simpson of Ipsos there. I mean, and you get the sense that there's been a lot of questioning in this country since the death of Queen Elizabeth about what the future should be. I mean, there was this inertia, I think, while the Queen was alive. We sort of accepted, even though there were still questions circulating about it, and obviously other Commonwealth countries were asking questions about the future of the monarchy. But here in Canada, it felt like that conversation was kind of on hold while the Queen was still alive. But now, with a new king coming in, certainly it's time, many of us think, um, to have those conversations. And 60% of people asked say they'd like to see the Prime Minister hold a referendum on the future of the monarchy in Canada. Now, only if only it were so easy. Now, it's a conversation, as I was mentioning, taking place in the other realms where Charles is now the formal head of state. Um, Barbados, of course, you'll remember, broke ties with the monarchy back in 2021. So lots of countries, specifically in the Caribbean uh, as well, having that conversation now about whether it makes sense to continue. Um, But making that move ranges from relatively straightforward to highly unlikely. And forget that call for a referendum to decide the matter here, because we lean quite heavily towards the next to impossible side of that scale. To explain why is Richard Albert. He's Director of Constitutional Studies at the University of Texas at Austin, but he spent a lot of time in Canada. He clerked for a Supreme Court Justice. He's author of Constitutional Amendments, Making, Breaking, and Changing Constitutions. He's in Bogota tonight. Uh, Richard, thank you so much for your time. Hey, so good to be with you, Ben. Just one thing you didn't mention about me. I'm a proud Canadian. Of course you are. Yes, I should have said you were proud. I, I keep, sometimes when you mention someone teaches in the States, they right away think, what can he possibly know about Canada? But you're, you're proud <laughs> Canadian as well. And, and, and you wrote a really interesting op-ed for the Ottawa Citizen the other day. I think there's been a lot of conversations going on about, well, you know, what if, what if we just had a referendum and got rid of the monarchy, right? And you made it quite, uh, you spelled it out quite clearly. That's just not how easy it is in this country with our constitution. We have probably the world's most difficult constitution to amend, and that's not a badge of honor. A constitution, a well-functioning constitution, should be flexible, should be amendable, should be changeable by the people so that they see their present views and values reflected in the text. So our constitution today on matters of major national importance is virtually frozen, which is not to say, however, 
that our constitution doesn't change. It does. It just does not change by constitutional amendment. It changes by judicial interpretation. Right. You, you refer. You use the term "handcuffed" to the monarchy, which is a pretty, which is quite the quite the word picture if you if you if you think about it. Our constitution, for better or worse, I think for worse, handcuffs us to King Charles. And so no matter how much we may wish to get rid of the king and to create a homegrown Canadian head of state, we just can't do it. We have to perform constitutional heroics to make it happen, and we just don't have that kind of political will in Canada right now to do it. Now, of course, this has come up in the past, and I, I gather there is a path towards it. But you uh, outlined some other, you know, unintended, con- you know, unintended consequences. In other words, to open up this debate would be to open a Pandora's box, because, as you mentioned, the Constitution has been so hard, been so frozen in time that there's all sorts of things people want to see, and if you open it up for one, the rest comes flooding in. So you think that those are the reasons I think you outlined quite a few that make it very unlikely above and beyond just some of the technicalities. You're, you're precisely right. You're precisely right. So we have to look outside of the text of the Canadian constitution for our rules of constitutional amendment, because we have procedures and expectations and obligations that aren't written down in the constitutional text. It's quite interesting. If you look at the text of the Canadian Constitution, it will tell you quite clearly what you need to do if you want to get rid of the king. It says, first, you need to get the approval of a majority of the House of Commons, the approval of a majority of the Senate, and then you need the approval of a majority of each of our 10 provincial legislatures. That's what the constitutional text tells us, but that's not all we need to do. I'm happy to tell you the other things we need to do, but I just don't want to discourage you because you will be quite sad if you're like me, a Republican. You'll be quite sad because you will see quite quickly that it's not possible to do. It was probably one of the most eye-opening parts of your op-ed was was when you laid out the reasons, the other reasons why, because I think a lot of us who aren't constitutional scholars look at this and say, oh, I guess there is a path, not an easy one, in fact, an, an air impossible one, but there is a path still. And you and I'll sure explain it because I think listeners will be interested to know what the sort of law of unintended consequences is here. So I've spelled out what the constitution tells us. That alone is difficult to do. We have never, ever in Canadian history been able to use that procedure to change anything about our constitution. Majority in the House, majority in the Senate, and then a majority of each of the 10 provincial legislatures. We've never done that successfully. We need to do even more, however, to get rid of the king. First, we have to look to the provinces because provinces have their own legal rules that tell them what they need to do before they can vote on an amendment to Canada's constitution. So some provinces, for example, BC, Alberta, they have a requirement that a referendum be held in the province before legislators can vote on whether to ratify or to reject an amendment that's proposed to them. That's hard to do. And yeah. then, go ahead, please. No, but that, yes, I was, I was just agreeing. Yes, that would be, we're, you're already building another, another brick in the wall here, as they would say. Yes, go on. It's, it's, it's so, that, that itself is going to be difficult. Okay. Then we have other obligations to follow in Canada that do not derive from law, 
but they derive instead from history and practice. And here I'm referring specifically to the Charlottetown Accord in 1992, a mega constitutional package of constitutional reforms that was proposed to modernize their constitution. We did things back then in 1992 that have set a precedent for how we will do a future constitutional amendment that touches upon major national issues. One thing that we did that we'll have to do again in the future is to hold the national referendum. People have this expectation that they are to be consulted before any major constitutional reform is made to Canada's constitution. So that's one thing that's gonna to have to be done over and above what the text of the constitution tells us. Another thing is that the territories will have a voice. The territories themselves will have to have a voice. Our constitutional text does not give any power to any of the territories when it comes to amending the constitution. But in 1992, in the Charlottetown Accord, the territories got a vote. And so they'll expect a vote again this time. Now, as hard as all of this makes it seem to amend the constitution to get rid of the king, and it is hard, that's not the hardest part of all. The hardest part of all has to do with a practice that we in Canada have been engaged in for decades that really complicates making a major constitutional reform to the Canadian Constitution. And that is our practice of using an omnibus bill. Omnibus bill. That is to say, a bill that doesn't deal with a single subject, but rather deals with multiple subjects, many of which are unrelated to each other. That's been our practice for decades, and that is what will end up killing any amendment to get rid of the king. And I'll tell you why if you wish. Great to have Richard Albert with us uh, this half hour, Director of Constitutional Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Proud Canadian, as he pointed out earlier, author of Constitutional Amendments, Making, Breaking and Changing Constitutions. We've been talking about uh, just how difficult it is to change ours in relation to the monarchy. A lot of Commonwealth realm countries, 14 of them now are realm countries, uh, of which king uh, the king is the head of state, down from 15 just a few years ago when Barbados left. Um, and we're talking about, you know, Canadians are saying 60% of Canadians polled wanted the prime minister to have a referendum, a national referendum uh, on the monarchy. Well, if only it were so easy, that would have to, as Richard was explaining, that would be step four or five of many, many, many. We had one more hurdle to jump in Canada, but I was also really interested in the work that I think you're doing with Jamaica. I was just reading that Belize is talking about becoming a republic now. So 14 could become uh, fewer than a dozen pretty rapidly the way things are going. Things are moving in the right direction. Let me say that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Explain, explain why, because I think a lot of people are interested. Every country has its own perspective about this conversation, right? And uh, I was seeing some reports this week from Kingston, uh, from the Jamaican capital, about why Jamaica wants to go. And it's been a real quick push. And they're looking at, right after the coronation, they're talking about a real fast push towards Republic. There are many Caribbean countries that are engaged now in quite serious self-reflection about what to do with their relationship to King Charles. And I think they're making the right decision to try to break free from this colonialist, uh, elitist, uh, racist institution. What discourages me, to be honest with you, is that we in Canada 
have just a harder path to follow than these other countries do. Our constitution makes it virtually impossible today for us to do what Jamaica is planning to do, what Belize would like to do, what Barbados did in 2021, which is to break free at last from the constitutional monarchy. You mentioned Jamaica. Jamaica is quite far along in its own process. And I am a member of the 15-person Constitutional Reform Committee that has been convened to advise on writing and enacting a new constitution for Jamaica, a new Republican constitution for Jamaica. I'm the only non-Jamaican on the committee. Um, I do have some family connections to Jamaica. My great-great-grandfather was born in Jamaica. My parents met in Jamaica. And virtually all of my aunts and uncles on my mother's side, except for one, they were educated in Jamaica. And so I have a deep investment in the success of Jamaica as a country, but more specifically in the success of Jamaica in making this clean break from King Charles and his heirs. You know, there's a lot of talk in the British press specifically, because I think they, they look at this from a different angle, obviously, uh, about, uh, about and this was the Belize example, is there anything the monarchy could do? Because I know they're trying, you know, Charles is trying to bring the monarchy into the 21st century to some extent. But this feels like, specifically with with Caribbean nations and Belize, this feels very much like an exercise in self-determination as opposed to anything the monarchy could do to apologize or to make, make amends for the many wrongs of the past. Is that right? That seems right to me. Uh, King Charles and his family, they could have begun by trying to make things right with an apology. But when the family visited Jamaica not too long ago, there was no apology. And so this is an easy thing to do, to take ownership for one's wrongdoing in the past. But even that, the family was not willing to do. And so here in Canada, we don't have quite the same relationship with the UK and the monarchy that the Commonwealth Caribbean has with the UK and the monarchy. But I think the reasons are just as compelling for us to make the break from the monarchy as it is for the Commonwealth Caribbean to make the break from the monarchy. But the difference, of course, is that it's much easier to do so under those constitutions. Barbados, Barbados in 2021, you know how they yeah, did it? Yeah, that was quick. They did that it. was quick. They did yeah. it with a vote. Yeah, right? they did it with a vote in the parliament. Yeah, it was a parliamentary vote. Yeah. yeah. Was, I mean, that, and even Jamaica's is relatively straightforward, but I understand a bit more complicated than that. It's a bit more complicated in Jamaica. You need to have a vote in the parliament and also a referendum in Jamaica. Now, that may sound easy. It may sound hard. It really depends from what perspective you're looking at it. From our perspective in Canada, it looks much easier than what we have to go through. But I think if you are situated in Jamaica, it actually feels very difficult to do that because the country doesn't have really much experience with referendums. The country's had one referendum, and that was in 1961. The people who voted in that referendum in 1961, you had to be 21 to vote. And so the people who are still around, who voted back then, 
Very, very, very few. And so part of the challenge in this Jamaican constitutional reform process is really to inform Jamaicans about the stakes, about the implications, about the process that they are going to take ownership of as they write their new constitution. I mean, we've, we've talked, in the, I mean, after the death of the Queen, we talked um, to someone in Australia about this too, why Australia had had a difficult time, uh, even though their process to break ties with the monarchy and become a republic is somewhat simpler than ours, or certainly simpler than ours. But the conversation is also, once again, different. It's just interesting to see that we all sort of talk about, I mean, the, the conversation in England is what's going to happen to the realm, and the conversation in each realm co- country is is much different. It's 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 very personal to each nation, I find. You're quite right. And it really strikes me that the effort that may be underway to modernize the monarchy, I think it's it's doomed to failure because monarchy and modernism, they're antagonistic. They're incommensurable. They're opposites. Modernity cannot tolerate monarchy. And yet constitutional monarchies have been a quite successful form of government. I mean, not in every case. The, we go back further in the legacy of the monarchy and so forth, but constitutional monarchies have been relatively successful overall. Um, so there's, there's, you know, the, the question I remember coming up in Australia was, if not this, then what? What, what, what do you make your head of state? And that became a political issue in Australia as well. So I, I know it's, it's a tough, listen, if, if it were easy to do, everyone would have done it, right? It's a tough conversation. You've added so much to it, though, to the understanding of it. Well, I appreciate that. And I suppose it really depends on what one means when one says that constitutional monarchies have been successful. One could be successful as a constitutional monarchy, different measures. What are you measuring? Are you measuring prosperity? Are you measuring constitutional endurance? Are you measuring stability? Or are you measuring the expansion of rights and freedoms, the shrink, shrinking the gap between the poorest and the richest? Are you measuring how those who have been historically excluded are now included? If you're measuring the latter factors, then I don't think I would say that constitutional monarchies have been successful. I don't think so. There are many constitutional monarchies around the world that are theocracies merged with monarchies that actually visit great violence on their people. And so I would just urge us to think about what we mean by success when it comes to a constitution. Our constitution in Canada I'm proud of parts of our constitution because it's allowed us to be a stable, prosperous nation with relative peace. Richard, we're going to have to leave it. at I mean, This has been fascinating. Thank you so much for weighing in on this. I appreciate your time tonight. Hey, thanks so much, Ben. Goodbye. Let's head to Ottawa now. Uh, China's ambassador was summoned today by the Canadian government uh, over allegations that Beijing had targeted conservative MP Michael Chong. Uh, the Chinese responded in with indignance. Uh, China strongly urges the Canadian side to immediately stop this self-directed political farce, they called it, not to go further down the wrong and dangerous path. Sounds a bit like a threat, doesn't it? And yet it seems that they, you know, the evidence coming out uh, from those reports seems pretty convincing, doesn't it? We found out some new evidence today, or at least some new uh, details about how widely the allegations that Michael Chong and specifically his family in Hong Kong were potentially the targets of intimidation tactics by Beijing. Um, a Global Mail report on Monday 
citing this July 2021 CSIS report, uh, revealed those allegations. And then the government was asked, well, when did you know about it? When did you know about this 2021 report? And the prime minister and Marco Mendicino, the public safety minister, said that they had found out on Monday. Essentially, they found out when they read the paper, saw the article, right? And as for the report itself, why wasn't it passed up considering, I mean, this was allegations of a threat by a foreign government against a sitting member of parliament, his family, because of activities within government. I mean, this is about, this is pretty serious stuff. So the question was, well, why didn't anyone know about it? So the prime minister said essentially that CSIS had decided not to raise the report to a higher level because it wasn't a significant concern. So basically, the story being that CSIS drew up the report, decided not to share it, and that was that. And Marco Medicino said the same thing. Well, today, Michael Chong told Parliament that he was told a different story by the National Security Advisor. That's the person who counsels the Prime Minister on security matters. He was told senior government officials were given that July 2021 report. So it was passed around that spells out the claim. Michael Chong said in question period today that the Prime Minister's National Security Advisor told him that she had that report. This report contained information that I and other MPs were being targeted by the PRC. This contradicts what the Prime Minister said yesterday. CSIS has been advising the government, the departments, the Privy Council Office, the National Security Advisor, Deputy Ministers, that foreign diplomats in Canada are presenting a threat to Canadian MPs in this House of Commons. Listen, once again, the question becomes, who knew about this report? It was made back in July of 2021. Why are we learning about it? Why did Michael Chong have to learn about it when the Globe and Mail called him up for reaction to find out if he'd ever heard of it? Why is the Prime Minister and the Public Safety Minister saying they found out about it on Monday by reading the paper? What happened to this report? Where was it? And who was responsible for sharing that information with Michael Chong? Um, We thought we'd put those questions to the Public Safety Minister, Marco Mendicino, who joins us now from Ottawa. Thanks for your time tonight. Thanks for having me. I was watching this really great profile that you did with uh, my colleague Eric Sorensen on playing the piano. And I thought, wow, that's what an amazing talent you have. And then I thought, it feels like there's been a sour note hit this week in the House of Commons over the whole Michael Chong story. And I'm just wondering what we know today, what you know now. When, where did that report go, that July 2021 report on those allegations of threats against MP Chong, uh, a colleague of yours, and, uh, and his family in Hong Kong? What happened to it? Well, first, I want to make it clear to your listeners that we take uh, any concerns expressed uh, around foreign interference, uh, whether it's with regards to Michael Chong or anyone else, very seriously. Uh, As I have said, um, and the prime minister has said, uh, that he and I found out uh, earlier this week on Monday, May 1st. But as soon as we found out, we acted decisively. I reached out directly to uh, Michael Chong uh, to express uh, concern and support uh, for the report uh, to make sure that he would be briefed. Uh, we followed up with CSIS to make sure that that briefing happened. It did. I'll just close by saying on this point that we are in a very different uh, uh, point uh, right now. Foreign interference is a challenge, has been for years, uh, but we're doing everything uh, within our power to make sure that we protect our democratic institutions and the people that work within them. I get that. And, you know, you're you're a former prosecutor. You know how all this stuff works. I I would have thought that if there had ever been a threat against a member of parliament, or at least the allegations of one, specifically targeting family abroad because of political activity in this country, a sitting MP like you, that would automatically be something that they would be warned about. Why do you think that didn't happen? 
Well, the first thing I want to say is that the government has put in place rigorous uh, protocols and tools uh, to ensure that we can protect our institutions from uh, foreign interference. Uh, One of the things that we did this week was um, we've issued new instructions uh, to CSIS to be sure that any time there is foreign interference involving a parliamentarian, a member of parliament, um, that we are immediately briefed so that we can be sure uh, that our uh, security agencies are taking all of the steps to mitigate and address uh, those uh, those concerns, those threats around foreign interference. And it is a reminder that we have to be vigilant. As I said, um, this is a very complex and challenging uh, issue that we confront on our national security landscape, whether we're talking about the People's Republic of China or Russia or Iran or North Korea. Um, we have to be eyes wide open 24-7 on this. And our commitment is to do that because everybody that works within one of our democratic institutions and indeed all Canadians have to be safe and secure from foreign interference. I mean, I, I know you answer, You asked. You were asked these questions in the House of Commons today. I mean, it, what what we now know, what Michael Chong is saying, is that he's been told by the National Security Advisor that this this report was circulating earlier. I, I guess it's not to harp on 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 the idea that you're not doing something now to rectify the situation, but I think it would be important to know what happened then, so you know where the process fell apart. Are you any closer understanding what happened to that report? Well, I think it's entirely fair, and uh, we need transparency to be upfront with Canadians on how it is that we do this work. Uh, and and one of the things that we are doing to address that is putting more rigor into the reporting protocols on the elected side of of government, while at the same time ensure, ensuring that we are respectful of operational independent independence, because it is important to explain to Canadians um, a couple things. First. Um, that CSIS carries out their work in a nonpartisan and a non-political uh, manner. Mm-hmm. Secondly, that decisions about what information can be released that implicate national security uh, have to be given with due regard for the law, uh, because we need to be sure that we are protecting the people that work within CSIS and other national security agencies, as well as the techniques that we use to fight against foreign interference. Right. Uh, I, again, in this case, I guess it just goes back to a pretty simple question, which is we now understand that I mean, you say you found out on Monday, sort of the prime minister, when the article was published in The Globe. I know for a fact that uh, MP Chong found out on Friday because the Globe and Mail called him about this article. But I, I guess it just strikes me as being really important in this case to figure out what happened to that report, because now you have these contradicting stories from the National Security Advisor uh, saying essentially that this report was sent up into the political side of things, that it wasn't kept by CSIS. So I guess I'm just wondering what happened to it and uh, and how curious you'd be. You must understand how difficult it would be for someone like Michael Chong and his family to live under the shadow. Well, again, I, I, I can't emphasize enough how important it is that we are transparent about how it is that we do this work and rest assured uh, that we did find out on Monday. And as soon as we found out, um, we acted and we will continue to support Michael Chong as well as other parliamentarians uh, so that we can fight against foreign interference. And we need to do this work together. At times, we have seen conservatives try to politicize this issue. Unfortunately, I think that actually plays right into the hand of foreign interference. Instead, what we need to do is reach across the partisan aisle and recognize that an attack against one parliamentarian is an attack against all of us. And it is only by being united that we can protect our democratic institutions and ensure that we are protecting Canadians. How can you protect yourself and other MPs if you don't know what went wrong? Um, Well, here's what I can tell you, um, that since we took uh, government, we have put in place 
new powers and authorities, including threat reduction measure powers um, that have been used by CSIS. In fact, earlier today, CSIS tabled its annual report yes. uh, for 2022. 49 federal parliamentarians uh, have been pr- briefed proactively to help mitigate and address against any concerns around national security. And it is also challenging to make sure that even as we give these new authorities to our security and intelligence agencies, that we are at the same time being as upfront with Canadians uh, as we possibly can be, having regard to the Security of Information Act, which puts in place, obviously, legal obligations so that we respect classified information to protect the people that work within the institutions of Canadians themselves. So this is an important conversation, um, but we need to have it, and we are having it. The Minister of Public Safety, Marco Mendicino, is with us tonight from Ottawa, the MP for Eglinton-Lawrence. Minister Mendicino, there were some changes earlier this week to uh, amendments to gun legislation that, um, and I just just understand why that had to be done, because I remember well when the original ban came out, and there was a lot of um, talking about that at the time, but clearly it needed to be fine-tuned. What have you done? Earlier this week, the government, uh, through its membership on the Standing Committee for Public Safety, introduced amendments which would strengthen the existing national ban on AR-15 assault-style firearms, which were designed for a battlefield and have no place in our communities, building on the Mass Casualty Commission final report, which was uh, uh, released very recently in the wake of the tragedy in Nova Scotia in Portapique in Truro. Um, this is very important, but that's not the only thing that we did earlier this week. We also uh, signaled our intent to make reforms to our gun control uh, laws around uh, ghost guns, which I've heard right across the country is an increasingly problematic phenomenon used by organized crime, as well as involving manufacturers Uh, who have their share of the responsibility to play in the classification of guns, uh, which ought to be prohibited. This builds on top of Bill C-21, which in its original form was already sweeping legislation, probably the most sweeping in a generation, because it would implement a national handgun freeze. As you know, it is no longer legal to buy, sell, or transfer a handgun in Canada for the first time ever. It would introduce additional tools for law enforcement to crack down against traffickers. It would introduce tools to reverse uh, the trends around domestic abuse and the presence of guns. So there is a lot of good policy in this gun control legislation. And I believe the vast majority of Canadians want to see stronger gun control laws, not weaker gun control laws. Uh, why is it that gun control advocates, police souviens, I mean, I was in Montreal during the Polytechnic massacre, so I remember it vividly. Why are they upset at you? They seem to think you've left a big gap in this legislation by removing uh, the list of 482 models that were supposed to be banned and now left that open. Uh, when will that be rectified or will it be rectified? Uh, let me just say that I've had the chance to get to know uh, some of the survivors from Police Souvienne, and not only them, but victims and survivors right across the country. And they have been the inspiration for this work. And right. indeed, many of the ideas that they have put forward are indeed reflected in the gun controls uh, that we are proposing through Bill C-21, as well as the amendments. Let me give you an example. Um, one of the ideas that we discussed was taking concrete action against large capacity magazines. These are magazines with six or more rounds, which could turn any type of a firearm, let alone a semi-automatic, into a potential potential mass shooter. So by doing that, and by striking an advisory committee that is made up of non-partisan Canadians from every walk of life, uh, we plan to get advice, concrete advice, the government does, 
on how we can uh, take further action against the existing market. So we are moving forward with a number of concrete uh, recommendations that will strengthen this package. The last thing I will say on this point is that I've had the privilege of working with other groups as well, like Docs for Gun Control and the Coalition for Gun Control, all of whom have come out and have been very supportive of the legislation and the amendments and the reforms that we're proposing. But I gather what's happened here is you're, you've banned assault uh, assault style guns. The definition of assault style guns that we banned in the future is, is what the bill talks about. It does doesn't do anything about the ones that exist already. And, and, and I understand how challenging this must be because the definition of an assault style gun is complex, right? That's where you run into some trouble on this. How much? Tr- how are you going to find the balance between? you know, making the police de uh, folks uh, satisfied and also making all the other people you hear from satisfied with what, what the legislation attempts to achieve. The national ban, which we instituted three years ago through the 2020 order in council, continues to apply even as we speak. So we started with 1,500 models banned. We're now approximately 2,000 models banned. Second, the technical definition that is part of the amendments to Bill C-21, once it becomes law, will apply going forward. Third, we're going to take action against large capacity magazines so that we can get at the essential ingredient to a mass shooter. And fourth and finally, we're going to get advice from that advisory committee that we're reestablishing so we can be sure that we are applying those um, other instruments that I've described to the existing market. But the other thing that I want to say, and this is the second part, is that you're quite right. Um, This has been a very difficult and emotional bait. But I think we've also been able to cut through some of the disinformation that has been pervasive in this debate. Um, and that is also important because we want to be sure that people get the straight goods from the government. And the government does not want to target gun owners. What we do want to do is target AR-15 style firearms, which have no place in our communities. Minister Medicino, thank you so much for your time tonight. Thank you very much for having me, Ben. One of the reasons why being able to gather here once again all of us together uh, to make sure uh, that everyone's voices are being heard as we shape the right path and the right choice for the country forward. The Prime Minister uh, was speaking today. Liberal Party members from around the country are gathering in Ottawa for their convention, which will go over the weekend. They've First time they met in person since 2018 in Halifax. Much, much has changed since then. Uh, not least of which a pandemic, uh, Russia invading Ukraine, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And the party's lost a bit of its momentum as well, has it not? I mean, let's be honest. If you look at the polls these days, um, you know, there was a minority government that they were elected uh, since 2018. They won a minority last time out. And um, their popularity, at least in the polls, has been slipping of late, right? So there's quite a bit, you know, parties, this often happens. It happened to the Conservatives under Stephen Harper. It certainly happened to the Liberals under Jacques Retzia and then Paul Martin with that change of changing of the guard. Parties tend to lose their way. Governments tend to lose their way a little bit. They kind of run out of ideas. They run on inertia. They run, they go back to the same playbook again and again and again. It's what happened to Stephen Harper. It's why he was so susceptible to a different image from a Justin Trudeau. Of course, Justin Trudeau's name recognition certainly didn't hurt, hurt him. Um, but here we are, 2023, and uh, coming off a rough winter with those allegations that, you know, basically they failed to protect Canadians and the electoral system from foreign interference. We were talking about that with the public safety minister 
in the last segment. Um, and again, those national polls that say that uh, the Conservatives are up by several points these days. And certainly, you know, growing anger with, with the Liberal government in different parts of the country. Now, keep in mind, they're still solid in some pretty key areas. They're still solid. They're right, their uh, polling is still very good in and around Toronto, where they won a ton of seats and so forth. But can the party renew itself at a convention like this? Here's the Prime Minister again. The work we're going to be doing on the ground over the next two years as we go knock doors, as we make phone calls, as we uh, shape and, uh, the conversations that we're having across the country to not, uh, not despair at all the challenges we're facing, but to be incredibly optimistic. Yeah, I mean, those are words we've heard a lot from the prime minister over the years. Optimism, sunny ways, right? And that's fine if that's your political brand. But here's the problem. We've been eight years in now. And I think they've done some good stuff over time. But I think the interview I did with Marco Mendicino, if you haven't heard it, you can hear it on our podcast at a little more conversation.com. But I essentially asked him a very basic question. What happened to the report? What happened to the 2021 report about the threats against Michael Chong's family in Hong Kong? Where is it? What happened to it? Nothing. Talking points, talking points, talking points. When governments don't treat their citizens like adults, he doesn't have to answer my questions, obviously, but I feel like this is something that the Liberal government does a lot. They kind of talk down. They talk down to people. And I don't dislike the Liberal government. I'm, I'm relatively agnostic. I just like good government, basically. I'll vote for the good government, the one that's going to fix things, govern well, you know? That's what you want. Um their inability to answer questions kind of always go back to talking points to always go back to the same you know to the same kind of stuff that we hear again and again and again that's what i find has become their problem it feels like they've run out of ideas to some extent and yet you know they've done again they've done some there's policies they passed that i think are really good um and others that i don't think are so great and right now it feels like they're really struggling so I thought I'd bring in Justin Ling, who always writes really interesting stuff. Uh, he's a freelance investigative reporter. Uh, he's the author of the Bug-Eyed and Shameless newsletter on Substack. And uh, he wrote a really interesting piece this week about what he thought the issues were with the liberal government of the day. And, and again, he is also uh, relatively politically agnostic. So I, I, you know, it's, it's good to be, not to get too partisan on this and just have a good, cold, hard cold-eyed look, you know, a sharp-eyed look at what the state of the government is. And Justin Ling joins me now. Justin, thank you. Thanks for having me. So the Liberal Party is uh, getting together for the first time for a convention in person in five years since Halifax. Uh, the glow of 2018 is, is long gone. And I think you've really pointed out some of the fundamental issues here. This is a government that has a lot of trouble listening, <laughs> listening to what's going on on the ground. You know, it, 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 I'm not even sure it's a problem of listening because I mean, that's their whole thing, right? I mean, like it, it is part of their brand, it's part of their ethos, it's part of how they build themselves in government that they're constantly listening. You know, they they are they have pioneered, they've reinvented the public consultation as a as a tool for their government. So, you know, it, it's not so much that they haven't created the space for listening, it's just they're not hearing what people are saying or they're choosing not to, or they're hearing it and then just doing the opposite, even worse, doing nothing. Um, and, and I think that's you know what's really bugged me for years about this government, and it's getting more intense lately. It's that they fundamentally believe 
that they are the most upright and moral and and fast acting and serious government in the world. And and you know that sort of uh, arrogant attitude has defined the Liberal Party for a long time. Uh, but I don't think I've, I can recall a government that's uh, that's simultaneously been this arrogant and this sort of inept. At getting things done. And I think that's where the, the real clash is. They're constantly listening. They're constantly doing inquiries. They're having consultations. They're studying the issue. They're getting expert reports. And they're coming to us and, and lauding all of this work they're doing. And then all of the problems that they profess to be tackling seem to be getting worse. And you can point to the areas where their own record, their own actions, their own policies, their own spending is poorly done, uh, badly considered, badly constructed, or in, in some cases, just non-existent. So it's a really frustrating place to be in. One of the examples that I think lays this pretty bare is the and the one that is, I think, the most, and you lay out many in this article, all of them equally relevant, but the foreign interference one, to me, is the one that seems mm-hmm. the most egregious because they've been warned about it for ages, and they keep getting caught out by these reports as if they simply were either paying no attention to it other than paying lip service to it, worried about offending someone, or just simply weren't interested. I mean, not not particularly interested in the business of governing, which is difficult, of course. We see we saw it with Donald Trump how difficult it is to not to just to do more than just talk. Well, so let's, let's talk about the foreign interference thing for a minute, because I think it's a good example, right? Um, the Liberal Party came into power, right, um, right around the time when Russia was ramping up interference into the U.S. presidential election. Um, Canada, like many of its intelligence partners, saw that and said, we're going to act. We're going to really put in place mechanisms that will prevent this kind of meddling in the future. And to their credit, they did. They actually built a good system. Um, They built uh, a series of alarm bells and monitoring processes and internal task forces and and you name it. And and, and I actually have to say that some of the stuff is really good. And I've I've heard kind of secondhand uh, from the team uh, at the foreign interference team at CSIS, and and they're serious people who are really concerned about these things and think a lot about them. I've talked to people inside PCO who deal with these topics. They're all serious. There's no lack of seriousness, intent, skill, and capability inside government to deal with this issue. But here's where the rubber hits the road. The Liberal Party was really concerned about Russian interference because they saw Russia as primarily a critic of their government. They wanted to catch Russia in the act, and they wanted to tell the other parties, and they wanted to go to the public and say, hey, look, Russia has been meddling in our elections, and we caught them, and they're trying so hard to get rid of us. That doesn't quite work so well when it's China, does it? No, because China has been largely meddling, as best we can tell, in to help the Liberal Party. Now, I'm not going to say the Liberal Party is is out there letting this happen because it benefits them, because I don't think that's the case. But all of these processes that they created don't seem to have worked so well when it was a country they didn't anticipate, right? Um, You know, they didn't brief the Conservative Party on these Chinese meddling operations. They didn't tell Michael Chong when uh, the Chinese government was out targeting his family, right? And that's really frustrating, isn't it? Because we're supposed to have faith in our government. We're supposed to have uh, confidence that when the government says we have built a system to stop, at the very least, detect and alert you to foreign interference. Well, when you have a record of years of foreign interference that they didn't, the, the best we can tell, they didn't stop, or at least did too little to stop. They didn't alert the public to. They didn't even alert the opposition to. And now they're saying, well, we're finally thinking about maybe expelling the Chinese intelligence officer who's sitting inside the embassy in Ottawa. 
what took you so long? You've already kicked out a bunch of Russian spies. Why haven't you gone after the Chinese? And, and this is where people get angry, right? The government is not communicating clearly. It's not being honest with us. It's not talking to us like adults. It's not living up to the promise that it made. And there's so many instances where this is the case. I mean, you can look at them following through on the recommendations, for, uh, the calls to action from the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, but paltry progress there. Um, you can point to, um, you know, even, even trying to set up a livelihood fishery for Mi'kmaq fishers in Nova Scotia. They dragged their feet on it, and it led to literal sectarian violence in this country. You can point to the fact that they keep talking about a housing crisis, and they're not building any homes, right? So so time and time again, their, 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 their vaunted rhetoric just doesn't meet the actual action they've taken and the progress that they claim to have made, and that makes people crazy, and I understand yeah, why. Yeah, and I, I see that. It, it jumps right off the page in your latest article. What what I touched me the most, what I thought was the most pressing about, or the, or the one of the interesting things, because you have a lot of, you interact, especially on things like freedom of information and so on. Mm. Um, you've had direct contact with, with the government and some of the way it operates. Governments like to ignore their critics, right? They want to hear what they want to hear. But the idea that, that simply any feedback they don't like vanishes so that everything is sort of packaged in a way that, that looks like everything is moving forward correctly. And I think that's where this whole thing falls apart is that we're being sold one product. And when you look under the hood, you realize it's not, there's nothing there. And that's the problem. They're not a terrible government, but they seem to have this incredible ability to just ignore bad news until it catches up to them. Well, I mean, I think this is the, the the real consequence of intense partisanship in this country, right? Like, you know, the critic, the criticisms I'm giving you, and the criticisms that you can hear from a lot of experts and academics, it's not it's not expressly partisan, right? I mean, there might be some ideological, you know, I have some ideological leanings, obviously, but I'm not a partisan. I frankly don't care who wins. I want a government that governs effectively, as does you know most the vast vast majority of people in this country. But the problem with hyper partisanship is that you tend to think about things. Ex- exclusively in partisan terms, right? So it doesn't really matter if the program that you set up is not delivering the results that it's supposed to. All that matters is that the existence of the program and the press release you get to put out about it gets to make a contrast with your opponents, right? And and I think that's fundamentally what's so frustrating um, about all of this is that this partisan brain has infected the people who are supposed to be delivering us basic services and keeping us safe and protecting us from foreign interference and so on and so forth. And you can point to this kind of everywhere along the way. I mean, you know, when the government sets up a a wildly kind of like a Rube Goldberg machine of online regulations, many of these things are designed to appeal to voters in Quebec and to to label the Conservative Party as being supportive of hate speech online, right? There are policies that will probably not work well. There are policies that will probably backfire. And it will leave people who actually care about promoting Canadian content, who actually care about funding Canadian journalism, who actually care about dealing with extremism online. It leaves all of us in this gulf where... You have to choose between a party that that says the right things, but are making the problem worse, and the party that is that basically come out against everything and has no real policy whatsoever. Climate change, another perfect example, right? You can point straight across this country, even to conservatives, to Democrats, to Green voters, to Bloc Quebecois, to liberals. Everybody, roughly, with some exceptions, everybody agrees that we need to do more to, t- to combat climate change, right? And this liberal government has 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 really stalled in most of its progress there. You know, they're not going to hit their own targets. And 
what will be required is some very substantial and thoughtful policies and investments that we're not seeing. Oh, but it's not going to happen, Justin. It's not going to happen. The Liberals you don't know, have right? to do it because they go to an election saying we're the only party that cares about climate change. If you care about climate change, you have to vote for us or else you're going to get the conservatives and they're going to be worse. So there's sure. no incentive to do better. You're You're fine with just the status quo you have because it's good enough to go into an election on. Justin Ling is author of the Bug-Eyed and Shameless podcast, and we're talking about uh, an article he wrote recently about uh, about essentially why is it the government that we have now needs to deliver more because it's simply making people furious with them. And again and again and again, the federal government seems to find itself in these horrible situations where they're trying to defend why they didn't do much about foreign interference in our electoral system. When they've been warned about it for years, there are many, many other examples. One of the things that, that concerns me is that, of course, if you look at where the conservatives have gone, the only way to beat a performative government is to be a performative opposition, right? Because they know, they know where the liberal strengths are that they can often simply say paint the conservatives one way and it kind of leads to you know i i feel like we're not talking about any of the issues that really matter i haven't heard anyone come up with a decent housing policy i haven't heard anyone come up with a, a climate plan that works or you know i just hear justin trudeau and, and pierre polyev kind of yelling at each other or painting each other in the worst possible light yeah, I mean, I mean, I mean, you, what is the real motivation of these parties, right? You know, the Liberal Party believes that they are inherently, intrinsically moral, and 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 that the Conservative Party is sort of inherently, especially in its current incarnation, a danger to the country, and 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 they're going to roll back the the hard won rights we've had. So the ends justify the means. Any amount of sort of, in some cases, outright lying, um, you know, in, insinuation, any amount of smearing of your opponent is justified because it, it means you get to stay in government and you get to continue dealing with reconciliation and advancing climate change and so on and so forth. Therefore, going into an election and saying Pierre Polyev wants to criminalize abortion, he wants to give every child an AR-15, uh, and, and he's going to criminalize um, you know transgender people, it, it, it's all okay because you are the moral party. Now, the conservatives, for their part, get to look at the, at the liberal government and say, they are so corrupt, they are so out of touch, and they are so elite, and they are so bad at governing, that anything we do, any sort of electoral Faustian bargain we make, is therefore justified. Therefore, it's okay that we're going to go and pander to the Freedom Convoy types and the Maxime Bernier voters. All of that is justified, because it's the only way we're going to get to government. And and what that does, it, it, it poisons the well for everybody. This ends up becoming a battle, a trench warfare scenario where neither party is concerned with the, the policies and the mechanics of government. They're concerned with the mechanics of how to squeeze out votes from people who are angry and frustrated and tired, right? And this is a real problem, right? We have a polarization problem in this country. And where does that polarization come from? It comes from the fact that people feel like their government's not listening. They feel unrepresented by the parties. They feel like uh, politics has gotten too acrimonious. They feel like the system and the country and our services are falling apart. And all of this makes that so much worse. You mentioned uh, how our voting system a minute ago, and I think it is an encapsulation of this problem, right? People in this country, particularly youth, feel like our electoral system no longer represents them and does not produce results that represents their views or the views of the people they know. And they're right, because our first-past-the-post system is not fair and it is not representative. 
They voted for Justin Trudeau explicitly on a promise. And then he turned around and broke that promise. And how did he justify it? In an interview with the CBC, he actually said that electoral reform, that proportional representation would lead to too much polarization. It would lead to too many smaller voices getting into parliament. And we can't have that. How condescending. And that has stuck with people. Some of them still vote liberal and they're not happy about it. Some of them are with the New Democrats. Some of them vote for the Greens. Some of them are in the conservative party. I have talked to conservative MPs who admit now privately that proportional representation has to be the future of this country because it's the only fair voting system going forward. But a lot of these people have stopped voting because why would you keep voting? Why would you vote for anybody after such a profound breach of trust as promising one thing, as fundamental as repairing our democracy, and then doing an about face and saying, never mind, you're, you're, you're not smart enough. You're, you're too polarizing to have the right to pick how you want to vote. That strikes to the heart of our country and our democracy and uh, our parliamentary system. And I, I, I really think the prime minister is going to be looked back on as a, a real charlatan for having done that. And remarkably, uh, he made that promise back in 2015 that it would be the last election held under the first past the post voting system. That topic is back on the Liberal Party agenda for their convention eight years later. Justin Ling, as always, thank you. Thanks for having me. I thought we'd talk about something real involving a star, a star war of type, more like a star meal or a star buffet. Can a star swallow a planet? Well, it turns, and not just a few chunks, but, you know, devour it whole. Well, it turns out astronomers have now found proof that just such a celestial phenomenon could happen, can happen, did happen. Um, they've caught a star swallowing a planet. Uh, they reported this on Wednesday, yesterday, and their observations are of what appears to be a gas giant about the size of Jupiter, which is big. Uh, being consumed by the star that it was orbiting. So it sort of, the star would puff up over eons and eons and eons and finally get so big that it would just engulf the planet in a puff. Literally, it's a puff. The thing disappears. Now, this happened uh, a long time ago. Obviously, it takes a long time for light to travel. So about 10, 15,000 years ago. But we're a planet, right? And we we orbit a star, the sun, so it got me wondering, I mean, obviously, the, the big question is, could this ever happen to us, right? And the answer is, well, maybe billions of years from now, but still. So I thought, it's Star Wars Day. Let's find out about a real star. Let's talk about something that a real star has done. And to help us do that is Morgan McLeod. He is an astrophysicist at the Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics at Harvard University. He's the co-author of this report, and he joins me now. Thanks for your time. Thank you. It's just been such a joy to get to uh, share this result. And I, also, it was a joy to, to start to piece this puzzle together. You Tell me about piecing the puzzle together, because I gather, in theory, people knew that this happened, but this is the first time that it was actually seen or proven, so to speak. How does that work? That's exactly right. And uh, so astronomy is interesting as a science because we don't really get to do experiments. I can't take a star and smash it into a planet and see what happens. We just have to watch the night sky and see what happens. And something that we've suspected for a long time is that planets that are close to their stars will eventually be eaten up as those stars change in size at the end of their lives. So the sun 
uh, will grow from its current radius all the way out to a little bit past Earth's orbit. Not immediately, but in five billion <laughs> years. Sick. That's alarming. Yes. Go yes. On. And so we long suspected that this must be happening. We've seen planets close to their stars. We've seen stars that are bigger than the orbits of those planets, but we've never connected those dots before. And so in connecting those dots, I think we have to rewind, what, 10, 15,000 years? And it's something called near the Aquila constellation. Is that right? That's right. So uh, this is just, you know, a patch of the night sky and an otherwise nondescript star in our own galaxy. We're looking across about a quarter of the size of the galaxy to see this star. What happened was it brightened really suddenly in visible light by a factor of about 100. And then as we continue to watch, it slowly faded away. And as it turns out, things that change in brightness in the night sky are actually pretty common, much more common than we knew 10 years ago. And so part of the process was piecing together what we thought this was. And one of the major clues came from NASA's uh, WISE Infrared Space Telescope. And what we saw is that even before the optical brightening, there was infrared light that told us that there was essentially cold gas and dust being spewn away from this system. And what we think was happening was a planet was skimming around the surface of the star, heating up and throwing out stellar material. Eventually that cools and it forms dust and it, it causes the emission that we see. So what you saw was this star essentially yes. growing and sort of pulling, <laughs> sort of growing into this particular planet. What I thought was interesting was that it had happened in the past that we'd sort of seen things be nibbled away at. Is that right? But this was this happened all at once. I mean, it took this thing whole. Absolutely. And something that's really interesting is that this process starts, we think, really slowly. And so you can imagine satellites orbiting our own Earth and interacting with the atmosphere. And what they feel is a that they as they run through our atmosphere, they feel a little bit of drag force just from the friction of passing through that air. But if their orbit tightens, if they fall just a little bit, they pass through denser atmosphere and that process happens faster and faster. And that's just what happens for this planet interacting with the star. So it starts very slowly. So presumably for a really long time, most of the lifetime of that star, perhaps billions of years, this planet orbited stably around its star. And then only at the very end does this accelerate to the point where we actually see the star brighten and the planet be swallowed whole in something like 10 days. So that's what I find the richest and most remarkable uh, part of this whole story is that you can go from this stably existing system to this really rapidly evolving system. On yeah, I'm, 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 I'm picturing like animal planet where, you know, something, an animal lies in wait forever and then and then and then just pounces. That I, I, it feels like what <laughs> yeah, the star exactly. does to the planet. Exactly. And is that was that un, is that unexpected or is that did, did you already know that that's well, that was really on. unexpected? But we we had some hints of this ahead of time in studying how pairs of stars merge. So actually, the sun is just a single star, of course. But there are lots of stars that are in close pairs. And in the past five to six years, we've been starting to see the sort of transient brightenings in the night sky that correspond to those merging pairs of stars. And one of the great mysteries was, how do they happen so fast? And we now think that it's the tail end of a runaway. And one thing we see in this particular source is that there is 
slow brightening in the lead in to this sudden outburst. So really what we're seeing is the tail end of the planet skimming through the atmosphere and when it finally kind of plunges in. So it's a process that starts slow but ends very fast. Morgan McLeod is with us this half hour from the Harvard Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics at Harvard University. Uh, He's uh, just uh, produced some research along with others that for the first time shows a star devouring a planet whole. In other words, actually over many, many years, eons, uh, and then very quickly within 10 days, sort of this planet's gone in a flash of light, in a flash of light. It devoured it whole and many things were learned. It's the first time it's actually been seen to have happened. We, I think there was a presumption that it did. So presumably, again, pres- presumably, as you said, you can't experiment. You have to watch. If this ha- has happened here, it's happened elsewhere, one would think. That's right. So we think that the fact that we were seeing this means that it's actually potentially kind of common in the lives of stars. So most stars seem to host planets and all stars will eventually evolve and grow in radius. So this might be a really central part of the story of the co-evolution of stars and their planets. And in particular, you don't have planets without stars. Planets orbit around stars and that sort of evolution is sort of very much tied together. And it's through the whole history of those objects. And It seems that in some cases that ends with essentially the recycling of the planet back into the star itself. Right. And and you mentioned this because, of course, the natural question is, well, wait a second, we're a planet. We have a star that that we orbit around. I mean, it would have to take a couple of other planets down first before it got to us. But still, what might that look like for for us here on planet Earth? Well, that's right. So our sun will ever so slowly grow in radius when eventually exhausts the hydrogen fuel in its core. The good news is that's in about 5 billion years. In other words, it isn't our most pressing problem. But uh, what will happen is the sun will slowly expand. Eventually, it will get so big that it fills up all the way to Mercury's orbit. Mercury will be engulfed within the sun. The sun will keep expanding all the way to Venus will be engulfed within the sun. And then later, the sun is uh, thought to get almost all the way out to Earth. And so it's very likely that Earth also will be uh, engulfed within the sun. Right. I think one of the most humbling things for me about this is that in this particular event, we're lucky to witness we never saw the planet itself. We only saw its effect on the star. In our own solar system, when the sun evolves, by the time it swallows our solar system planets, the power that we deposit into the sun will be so small that it won't even cause a blip. It won't cause this sort of flare that we see. We'll just be essentially too small for the sun to even notice. Really? So so planets like Mercury and Venus will just simply one day be there and one one day they won't? That's right. And it's only because this particular uh, event was a very large planet, a planet sort of analogous to Jupiter, to the best of our knowledge. And it was very close to its star. So this Jupiter-like planet was in an orbit of just days instead of our own Earth has a 365-day year orbit around them. So we have nothing to worry about here for for five billion years, which is a a mighty long time. For you, though, now that you've seen this happen once, uh, where does your research take you next? Oh, that's a wonderful question and one that we're really excited about. So one thing is that 
we thought this must be happening, but we really, other than uh, the before and after, didn't really understand the physics of how it must work. And so now that we've actually seen this, what we get to do is try to model it and understand all the details. And the hope is that by recreating it in computer models, that's the equivalent of a laboratory in astronomy is we don't get to do this in a lab, but we do get to make models of it. And when those models start reproducing the key features that we saw, we think we've understood this better. So one of the really exciting next steps for me is to try to uncover some of the details of how that process works of a planet being swallowed. Does How does the skimming through the stellar atmosphere work? How much of the planet is destroyed? How much is deposited on the surface of the star? We're interested in questions like, does this cause the star to spin differently? Does it pollute the stellar atmosphere with the planetary material? Um, what would it, what would those after effects look like on other stars so that we can go looking for them? We think that this might be a really nice keystone in kind of connecting those dots to from between the planet populations that we see and their after effects on stars. So you've seen you've seen the the consumption. Now you're going to look at what happens to the digestive That's system. Right. Essentially, you know, yeah. you've probably after a really big meal lay on the couch, um, and we want to know what that looks like for a star. It does. It does remind you, though, even though the you know Earth's Earth's similar fate may be billions of years away, it does remind you of just how awesome the galaxy is, doesn't it? That's right. And then there's huge amounts of energy involved there. Planets are orbiting their stars there. They can be, you know, created in these environments. They can be sort of recycled or subsumed in these environments. And I think that it's a, if nothing else, a nice reminder to not take ourselves too seriously. We're just part of that long, long history. Indeed. Well, it's May the 4th, right? So May the 4th be with you today. <laughs> That's right. Uh, Star Wars or Star Trek? Do you have a favorite? Oh, uh Probably Star Wars, but you know, I you, you I love everybody out there. <laughs> <laughs> a very diplomatic answer. Morgan McLeod, right. it's been it's been a joy. Thank you so much. Thank you. I don't know if you were watching this court case. I've always found uh, copyright infringement cases, especially around music, really interesting. Uh, you know, I love music, so whenever and you hear so much that kind of sounds alike, you think, well, well, how did this one end up in court? So. The battle going on here was the allegation by the estate or of one of the co-writers, not Marvin Gaye, but one of the co-writers of Marvin Gaye's classic tune, Let's Get It On, back in 1973. Um, the allegation that Ed Sheeran, the British singer-songwriter, had lifted parts of that song for his big hit in 2015 called Thinking Out Loud. Here's a, here's a mashup of the two of them together. Be loving you till we're 70. And baby, man, trying to hold back and feel it for so long. Heart could still fall less, heart at 23. And I'm thinking about. Yeah. 
Now, I admit when I heard that, I'm like, yeah, I get it. I get why they might sound a bit alike. I get why maybe someone would think that was worth pursuing. But what I didn't realize is that, and this is what our next guest will talk about, is that it's not about how much song B, thinking out loud, sounds like song A, let's get it on. It's how original is song A, right? Uh, Because to be able to lift something, to, to infringe something, that thing that you're taking has to be pretty original, right? Anyway, today, a jury sided with Ed Sheeran. They found that he had not stolen parts of Let's Get It On for Thinking Out Loud. Here's what he had to say after. We spent the last eight years talking about two songs with dramatically different lyrics, melodies, and four chords, which are also different and used by songwriters every day all over the world. We need songwriters and the wider community to come together and bring back common sense. These claims need to be stopped so the creative process can carry on and we can all go back to making music. Yeah, I mean, the audio on that one wasn't great, but Ed Sheeran, that's how he reacted. He said, you know, clearly I was right and we shouldn't be wasting time with these sorts of things. Now, I'm not one to judge on every other case, but we did speak earlier this week to a musicologist um, who had nothing to do with this case, forensic musicologist, as a matter of fact, uh, Joe Bennett, who's with the Berklee School of Music in Boston. And he laid out and then played out why he felt this was definitely not a case of copyright infringement. He thought Ed Sheeran was right, and he hoped the jury would see it that way as well, which it did. So this interview was done before the verdict. Keep it in mind. It was done before the verdict, but it goes a long way, perhaps, in explaining why the jury decided the case the way it did. So joining me now, Joe Bennett, forensic musicologist, or joining me earlier this week, Joe Bennett, forensic musicologist, uh, professor at the Berklee College of Music in uh, Boston. And I began by, of course, thanking him for his time. Good to speak to you. Every time this pops up, these cases get so much attention, I think, because people are so familiar with the songs. I mean, especially these two. I mean, these two were both massive hits. Uh, so just to start at the beginning, do you think this is a case of copyright infringement? This is absolutely not a case of copyright infringement. Nothing could be further from the truth. These songs sound similar for an absolutely innocent reason that they similar chord sequence. That is very familiar to pretty much any songwriter. Some songs share a chord loop, and that's kind of common knowledge in the songwriting community. Yeah, I mean, pop songs, you know, there, there are only so many chords. I mean, all, there's only so many ways to make the, to bake the same cake, so to speak. When you look at this one, though, I mean, Ed Sheeran clearly has been in court before when it comes to these sorts of things. Where does where does is the line drawn for for an artist or an estate such as Marvin Gaye's, who obviously had that big uh, case with blurred lines and uh, and got to give it up uh, many a few years back? Where does the decision to go ahead with a case like this? How does that happen? Yeah, well, spurious lawsuits are filed all the time in America, as, as we know, and it's, it's a fairly easy thing for anyone to file the initial complaint for any potential plaintiff to say, I think you copied my song. They just need a few hundred dollars and a compliant lawyer. A lot of cases like this get dismissed because they have no substance. And of course, that means that the public rarely hears about them. You know, in my consultancy life, I see a ton of these where there are frankly crazy accusations of copying due to 
a simple commonplace element. Like this morning I was working on a four-note bass line. One hip-hop person had said, you copied my four-note bass line. And right. it was such a simple gesture that it was easily possible that two people could have come up with it independently. And, of course, I just came up with a ton of examples that demonstrated that. In terms of where the threshold is, well, what the musicologists for the plaintiff will need to show is that not only is the similarity so significant that the only explanation for it is copying, but also they will need to show that the thing being allegedly copied is unique in the history of all music, which is what you need to achieve to file a copyright with something. Normally with the more recognizable aspects of a song, that is the top line melody and the lyric, those things can be unique actually quite easily. Certainly in the case of melody, any melody with rhythmic values over a period of bars is likely to be unique in the history of all music. Um, so what these cases are often about is fragments. People go after like, in this case, two bars of simple chords or a, a one bar pentatonic melodic lick, things that appear in music as small building blocks of the song and that until recently songwriters just felt they could use freely because they're kind of available to everyone. And I think that's why this case is so concerning for many in the songwriting community because if the plaintiffs prevail here, then that chord sequence, the chord sequence of thinking out loud of chord one, three, four, and five built on triads of the major scale, played in that particular way of anticipating the middle of the bar, that would be off limits to other songwriters. That would be copyright Marvin Gaye and Ed Townsend. And that would be kind of worrying. And certainly that is the argument that the defense is making. Right. And did you, you have examples of this because you've pointed out that this is not by in, in any way, uh, even let's get it on is not an original. Uh, you know, that part of the song is not particularly original. I mean, let's get it on is an incredibly is it a distinct song and easy to pick out the moment you hear the opening bars. But you, you've pointed out and you've played it that these this is actually quite a common way of doing things. Yes, absolutely. Now, to be clear, you know, my personal artistic view, I believe that Let's Get It On is a classic. That's uh, oh, a great song. It's a it, great yes, song. It's, yeah. it's a great song. And, and similarly, Thinking Out Loud, it won a Grammy. It's a fantastic song. But they are separate and distinct songs that happen to have a similar backing track. So let's just get briefly into the music theory. I'm going to sure. grab a guitar here, and I'll just give you, give you a bit of background. So... I'm going to play both songs in the key of D. They're actually in different keys, but to hear the similarities and differences. So um, let's get it on is the following chords. D, F sharp minor, G, and A. And played with this rhythm. So that's your two-bar loop. Right. Thinking out loud is the very similar chords. It's D. Then D over F sharp. So the second chord is slightly dissimilar than G and A. And it sounds like this. When performed at a sort of 80 BPM-ish tempo, sort of slow-ish ballad, the bass lines are likely to sync up. 
I get it. Aha. Even notwithstanding the fact that the second chord of the loop is not actually the same, if Ed Sheeran has copied from Marvin Gaye, he hasn't done it very accurately, <laughs> shall we say. Uh, but let's, let's take a listen to, let's get on. I'm going to play you just a four-bar section. So we're going to sure. hear that two-bar loop twice. Sure. Here it is. Here is thinking out loud. Darling, I will be loving you till we're 70. Baby, my. So, fairly obviously, um, especially when I play them back at the same tempo in the same key, everyone can hear the subjective similarities. And um, in a case like this, a musicologist will do a thing called a prior art search. Mm -hmm. and that means they will find just how common the, the musical object, in this case, the four chord loop, they'll find out just how common that is in music. So to go way back, let's go back to before thinking out loud. So let's just play two bars of Let's Get It On to familiarize ourselves with the loop. That loop is actually the same as the 1967 song that predates Let's Get Let On, Georgie Girl by The Seekers. It will sound completely different, but it's the same chords. Here's Georgie Girl. Hey there, Georgie Girl, swinging down the street so fancy free. I know so that song. Only, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's faster. Yeah. And of course, I could digitally manipulate it. Let's do it. This will be a tough lesson. We could play Georgie Girl at Thinking Out Loud and let's get it on tempo. Sure. Here it is. It's going to be a bit grungy. As a, as a non-musician, that now makes perfect sense as to what you're trying to, to put across here is that the song itself is not built on a particularly unique foundation, right? Well, right. And of course, in music law, in copyright law, you have two copyrights. You have the song, mm -hmm. the musical work, as the lawyers call it, and the sound recording or the, uh, the record, as the public calls it. So obviously, it's possible to play Georgie Girl at 80 beats per minute and it still be recognizable. Um, so fundamentally, it's the same musical building block. B but let's do another slow jam example, actually, that's more in the vein of Let's Get It On. Mm -hmm. um, again, I'll just give you a tiny bit of Let's Get It On first, just to remind ourselves. And here is Van Morrison from 1989, Have I Told You Lately. So it's the same loop, slightly different. Interesting, because when you play all those songs, you know, to the non-educated ear, you wouldn't think any of them were similar. I mean, you can see slight similarities between Ed Sheeran and Marvin Gaye a little bit, but really, not really. Well, that's because we hear the arrangement and the production, mm -hmm. which are normally not considered to be part of the copyright, certainly not in an early 70s work where the copyright subsists within its sheet music uh, because of the law at the time. Um, so, yeah, when you hear Have I Told You Lately, it sounds different, but only because it has like swooping strings in there. Right, okay. It doesn't have like a wah-wah pedal on the guitar that you do. <laughs> 
in, that you have in Let's Get It On. So, but those surface elements of production, they're just on the record. They're not part of the song. It's still, you know, you could play Have I Told You Lately on a an accordion and it would still be recognizable. It'd still be the same song. Once one has got one's head around that idea, strip away the surface and listen for the song beneath. Then with something as simple as this, when we're talking about a simple one, three, four, five ascending diatonic chord pattern, you start to find it everywhere. So here, for example, is Garth Brooks. He loves this chord sequence. This is his song, Wolves. Charlie Martin and his family stopped today to say goodbye. Now I think that sounds like Have I Told You, told you Lately by Van Morrison, <laughs> now that you've played it that way. You've certainly proven the point of, 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 why, of why this is a complicated case. Do you have any guessing on where this is going to go? I mean, I guess we don't, it's, in, it's in the hands of a jury, so we don't know what's going to happen in this particular Ed Sheeran case. Uh, yeah, and I think one of the concerns about the U.S. system is that it uses juries. What that means is that it, it kind of could go either way. If it were tried in any other country or most other countries, they would just be the judge and the experts and the lawyers, and they they would figure it out and the judge would make a decision. But the problem with the U.S. system is that when juries are involved, that helps the plaintiff. Jurors can't strip out unprotectable elements in their head and identify only unique elements. You know, they're not songwriters, they're not copyright lawyers, they're not musicologists. So they need guidance on that stuff in the courtroom. And all too often, the journalist on the web piece will sign off by saying, so, hey, everyone, what do you think? Here are the two YouTube embeds. You think it's copying? And that encourages people to ask you know, how similar are these things? Whereas what the court will need to do is to strip out the unprotectable elements and listen only to the elements that are unique to let's get it on and presumably protected by copyright. Now, in my view, this chord sequence is not unique to let's get it on and the defendant's musicologist in that case has already filed with the court lists of dozens of songs that use this chord sequence in a similar way i think sanity is going to prevail here but we're watching this with great interest well joe bennett thank you so much for uh, for essentially taking us inside a courtroom on this one that was fascinating i appreciate it thanks 